Here we are. Okay, we're go here. ahead. We're here. Yes, I'm I'm pissed off because <laughs> I came here. I'm like rushing to get here on time. I've had internet connectivity problems all day. I haven't eaten, so I'm grumpy because I'm hungry. So I make myself the world's worst sandwich, and I come downstairs with my can of Sprite and my glass of ice. And I sit down, and I'm like, all right, I'm dialing into the Zoom, and I'm distracted, and I pour my Sprite onto my desk. Oh, no. <laughs> Add onto my mouse, keyboard, pad, and bobber. And now my desk is, well, I wiped it or whatever with baby wipes because it's the only thing I have nearby. So, <laughs> so I wiped my desk with baby wipes, and um, now it's a sticky, baby smelling, sugary, spritey disaster. And I know you can't tell, but he's here asking for all of it. But well, he, <laughs> so, he should just lick the desk. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm going to lick anything. Bad dog. Anyway. That's how I got here. Sorry, I'm grumpy. Good. Well, this is, it's good to know how you're joining. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Really appreciate right. that uh, solidarity, man. We're here with Odia Kagan, who is the chair of GDPR compliance and uh, international privacy at a firm called Fox Rothschild. Uh, is it like 500 attorneys? 20? No, it's like over a thousand. Is it? Okay. Yeah. It's so, one billion. So it's one million. <laughs> Uh, I first encountered the law. Can I tell a Fox Rothschild story? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I have one too. You go. Go. You go first. I have a little lag. Go. You go first. Okay. Uh, I first encountered the firm ten-ish years ago when I was a total baby negotiating a uh, agreement, uh, partnership agreement on behalf of TD Ameritrade when I worked there on that legal team. Came across a partner of yours. He was super patient, super nice, explained a bunch of shit to me that I should have known, um, walked me through it, got, you know, we got the deal done. I didn't embarrass myself. And I've always had a positive association with the law firm. So Steve Cohen, wherever you are, thumbs up, buddy. He's a nice guy. I love this story. Yeah. Um, I have a, I have a Fox Rothschild story too. Um, it's about 10 years ago. It's interesting for me to hear from you, Andy, that 10 years ago you were a baby, but we'll talk about that on another episode. Um, but like 10 years or so ago, when I was first starting to do like panels and talks and shit like that, honestly, I, you know what I probably was talking about back then? Like HIPAA, like something stupid. But I went to New York to be on a panel, or I think I was just giving some remarks. I think it was at like the Harvard Club or somewhere cool like that. And one of the sponsors was Fox Rothschild, and there were these little foxes on the table where everyone sat, which I thought was really cool. Um, and so I still have the fox. He's upstairs somewhere. And I also have a fox tattoo. I don't know if you can see that. So I love foxes. And that is my uh, Fox Rothschild story. I have a little orange fox from 10 years ago around, around here somewhere. Nice. Very cool. We have green ones, too, if you want. Please send me a green fox. That sounds amazing. <laughs> well, so did, how did you land there? What's the story? Um, 
I was looking for an opportunity to get a better platform to grow my practice. That's like the most boring sentence you could ever find. Right? Like <laughs> but it's true. Did you take that out of like the like three it's, I mean, it, it's true. I mean, I was really, really looking for, you know, a platform to kind of, you know, be able to really ramp up my practice. And that's, that's, that's what I, you know, have been doing. <laughs> That on, was that on privacy? Was that on privacy in particular? Because yeah. I know the firm has like what I would consider kind of practice areas that feed privacy, like venture and tech and things like that. Was that the goal? Yeah. So my practice for the past while has been 100% privacy. And back when, you know, when I started this, this was, I mean, it's still not that common, um, but, and I remember not going to say, you know, when and where I was told that, you know, the, what was it like, you know, it's too narrow of focus or it's too something. Um, and I think that's one of the, one of the things that I've been seeing in practicing, you know, privacy law or data protection law in the U S I remember when I was starting and people were asking, what do you do? And I said, well, I mean, you know, I do, you know, U S data protection. And they said, Oh, you do incident response. I'm like, no, I don't do incident response. I do counseling. And then, and when I was talking to European lawyers, it was actually easier. I said, I do exactly the same thing you do, except I also do it with U.S. laws. And then the Europeans, you know, understood because they were doing GDPR. They were doing the data protection directive. They were doing kind of day-to-day counseling on data protection. Whereas here it was like, oh, you do incident response. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not what it is. And so my practice for the past while has been 100% privacy and um and it you know kind of also um you know supporting things like you know the privacy piece of MA because I used to do back in a really long time ago I used to do MA so I have kind of the I know how to run deals but I also know how to do the privacy so I can kind of figure out okay well this is important or this is not important um but mostly it's you know yeah it's straight up data protection counseling yeah What's the, uh, like, what's the scene like in Philadelphia in terms of privacy? We hear about a lot of like <clears throat> New York, DC, you know, as far as you at California, <laughs> like what's the, what's going on on the ground where there are a lot of lawyers doing it in, in Philadelphia as pretty major city. So I think that um, one, the main point that I want to, you know, mention here, and it sort of, you know, ties in what we were talking about before, uh, is that the, the, at least my practice, right? It's a, it's a national practice, it's a global practice. It doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really translate into state lines. I mean, you know, the, the US, the, you got, everybody knows, right? Like CCPA is not a state specific law. GDPR, you know, is, you know, extraterritorial. And that's primarily what I do is I do a lot of GDPR work with US and US based and multinationals, um, kind of dry, you know, taking kind of my deep bench of, you know, kind of knowledge on GDPR and my, you know, experience working with US based companies that have not been doing this. So it's kind of like different mentality and putting those two together and then doing, you know, US data protection laws, a lot of which are federal and then CCPA and Virginia and Colorado, which are going to apply to non non-California, non-Virginia, non-Colorado. So first of all, really the practice and the client base is kind of all over the place um, a lot. And, and this has been facilitated right by, you know, the fact 
that we are all, you know, everybody's remote or was remote or will be remote. And then, you know, 3.30 a.m. today, I did a 9.30, you know, Central European time webinar this morning um, on, you know, data protection in automotive, uh, in connected vehicles. So that's kind of one. Um, the On the ground, I think sort of, on the one hand, there is the reputation of and and actually a lot of kind of health data right we have a lot of kind of healthcare companies we have you know gsk we have teva pharmaceuticals we have a bunch of those companies and then of course we have comcast and so there's you know i think a lot there are a lot of like serious companies and then the law firm scene i think we have in generally speaking i feel like um you know this is an interesting field where it's still kind of like you know the data protection community even in the U.S. is not that big. So at some point you're like, you know, a lot of the faces and like you, you know, you see them, and you know them. So last time I was in line, I was uh, not last time. One of the last few times I was at the IAPP summit in D.C., I was standing next to Pedro, our friend Gary, and it was right, Gary Keibel, and it was right around 2018, you know, GDPR launch period. And I was just shooting the shit with him getting coffee. And I was like, what's the what's it been like for you? And so I'm sort of wondering if your experience is similar to hers where he had clients coming to him, you know, fed, fed to him across the firm or his own clients that were like, you like three weeks, two weeks before GDPR sort of like, oh, like what do I need to do something there? Right? Like, so what, what we got, you know, what do I, I need to do it was a couple of weeks. What, what, what should I do for the next couple of weeks to get up to speed in that? And he was just like, this is, you had to walk so many of them through how different this was. Is that was that your experience too? Yeah. So there was a lot. There were a lot of people, you know, coming out, um, and like, you know, May or like April. Like, oh, we gotta like do all. I mean, guys, like, this is not this is not happening in the next three weeks um, because there's a lot of things that you need to do. Um, and I think that you know everybody had first of all everybody had this feeling. Um, prior to May 25th, that it was like, you know, Y2K, like the sky was falling and everybody was like, you know, the earth was shaking and like every, everybody was going to die. But, and then it like, you know, the next morning happened and like nothing happened. Right. And, and if you, and, and you still, if you ask some of the, you know, some of the regulators in Europe, they're saying it's still early days for GDPR even now. Right. So I think that, yes, that did happen. And, and it happened in the, in the lead up to CCPA. And the interesting thing was, um, which I see a lot, is that a lot of companies that should have been worried were not. And a lot of companies that didn't really need to be worried were very worried, right? And I think that's also something that we see with GDPR enforcement and maybe part of the criticism is that, you know, there are a lot of SMEs that are like really kind of, you know, trying to bear this burden of, of compliance and they, you know, kind of don't have very, uh, you know, kind of problematic data practices, whereas other companies that might have more are maybe, you know, less compliant because they can be. Um, but I think the main takeaway on this, and, and it's a point that I've, I've been trying to drive home both on GDPR and on the U.S. kind of let's calling you know, rolling, um, rolling updates of legislation that keeps coming out is that it is an ongoing process, right? 
It's like whenever somebody tells me, oh, you know, I need a certificate, I need to certify, I need to represent that I'm GDPR compliant or, you know, and, um, and, you know, my, my answer to that usually is that I need to get a t-shirt that says, I want to show you something. Yeah. I want to show you something. I'm going to hold this up to the camera. Can you, can you guys see this? Compliance. It says compliance is a flowing river. Oh my God. This is a sticker that I made. It's got the Alice logo on it. <laughs> a bunch of us have them. It's on my computer oh as my well. God. And it speaks to exactly what you're saying. I'm constantly like, I, I don't know if I coined that phrase or made it up or whatever, but I trying to make it popular within Alice that like, this oh is, God. this is just ongoing work. Like it doesn't stop. Pedro, what, what's your reaction? Oh my God. You drowned in your river. basically. I'm, I'm getting eaten by a crocodile in your flowing river of compliance. Hey, there, there, we need some Zen here. I appreciate all the stuff you guys are saying. I got some hard questions. Is GDPR, yeah. is GDPR fair? Is it fair? It's fair and lawful. <laughs> is it fair though? And, and what I mean by that is like, I get, I get the principles obviously. And I think those are pretty sound. Does it favor incumbents? I think that it, um, well, favoring, I don't know if it favors incumbents. I think that, I think what it does is I think it uh, imposes a, you know, the, the, the burden of compliance with respect to SMEs is disproportionate if you're comparing it to like large established companies, both because of, and we all know this as, 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 as lawyers and you guys did deals too, you know that the $1 million deal and the hundred million dollar deal, the amount of work that you're doing is not a hundred times more, right? It's, it's not. And so, and then, you know, you, you've all heard this before, right? It's like, oh, this is budget. This is a budget sensitive deal, right? Because we got to do the whole, the, all the same stuff, but the deal is just a million dollars. It's the same thing, right? And the SMEs, they kind of, I mean, there's like exceptions with the, you know, article 30 requirements and whatever, but like, basically, you're an SME, you've got to kind of do the same stuff as a big company. And that is really difficult to do. And I think one of the things there's been a lot of, obviously, you know, kind of a lot of commentary on the new initiative from the UK, from the UK DCMS on their data unlimited. And one of the things they're saying there is we know that small and medium enterprises are like really hurting under this, you know, compliance burden. It's very difficult for them and let's think about how we help, right? And I think that is a very um, welcome approach because they do need help and, and it is difficult. And there is merit to saying, okay, you're like a whatever mom and pop shop and you use this and you don't have like very creepy data protection practices. If you ask the individual, right? Their, you know, their chances of being harmed by this are kind of a lot lower than something that kind of monetizes data and shares. Can I push back on that? I don't agree with that at all. I think it depends on the business. So if I run a small adultery website, Oh, for sure. The, yeah, the yeah, risk yeah. of a data leak there, yeah. if I'm a user, is much yeah, higher than the risk of a data leak if I use Pinterest. Yeah, so I don't no, do that. But, 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 but let me keep let, let me keep probing the uh, like resources question because that's the one I'm more interested in. Um, Andy is the GC of a startup, and he's got how, how big is your team in? Three and a half. Andy's got three and a half, so he's got two people. Oh, wait, and, wait a minute. The half person is amazing. So four. 
Okay. And he's got four people. One person who's half person, half amazing, and three others. Oh, <laughs> hybrid, that's hybrid. Yeah, yeah. Half person, half amazing. That's a Nas lyric, by the way. Shout out to Nas. But half person, half amazing, and three others. Cool. You got four people for your whole company's like private operations. I work at Facebook. I run the ads and monetization privacy policy team. Our our main focus is like privacy practices around our just our monetization, which happens to be a pretty big thing. I have 14 people on my team just doing that. I'm not even in legal. There's an entire legal team that's shaped just like mine, that's bigger than mine, that does just that too. There's an entire privacy like implementation compliance team that does just that as well. And then there's the business people, the product people, the sales people, all of the things all around this apparatus. So it's hundreds of people working on this one issue within my company. Yep. It's not, and that repeats itself for other privacy topics and, 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 and areas of risk and areas that require management. Does that, when I said, does it favor incumbents? I mean, the amount of investment that a company like mine can make or an Amazon or an Apple or a Google or forget the tech companies or a Ford or, you know, I guess Ford is sort of a tech company now, but whatever, you get my point. Old established brick and mortar companies can make is disproportionate to like what Alice can make. The intentions I think are probably the same. We want to do the best job we can given the resources we have. Is the best job you can do with less resources somehow being potentially scrutinized at the same level as the best job someone can do with more resources. And is that fair? There's two sides to that coin. So you're yes, in the sense that you're describing it, it does favor incumbents. And we've talked about that a lot. Like it definitely, all the resourcing favors the incumbent, like especially where there are issues that are unclear of which there are many. So Facebook can take a very big risk and have market impact where Alice cannot do that at all. But I think where we where we have an advantage is being nimble. And I have, so we have four really good people. So my four really good people can attack the problems and it's a smaller set of problems, right? So I can, and I'm not gonna get the regulatory scrutiny. Nobody's shining the flashlight right at, right at me necessarily, unless we do something hyper risky, like you run a type of website or, or do something that is really like, has a lot of eyeballs on it. So we have the ability to be really nimble, really flexible if we are focused on it. But I think like not everyone is attentive to those things. So in that sense, it maybe means that smaller companies need to dedicate more resources to it, need to take it more seriously, need to think about it. And like as a privacy person and a person that, you know, the three of us, I think, look out for privacy in terms of consumers and what they are getting. Uh, I think that's generally good. Um, so if I walk into a bar, I love examples. If I walk into a bar, I have a choice. I can order a margarita. I can order a Texas margarita. Or I can order a skinny margarita. And it's really, I can drink the one that I want. One's super loaded in calories and has Grand Marnier. One is loaded in sugar. And another one's going to be a little bit more sour, but it's probably going to have less calories, but just as much alcohol, right? With GDPR, depending on what your budget is and what your company does. If you're in the business of personal data, you don't get to pick the skinny GDPR. Okay. Like you got to go with the Texas every single time you got to comply with the whole thing like that, yeah. unless you fall into one of the narrow exceptions and these types of things, but they don't usually apply to tech startups, for example, like the exceptions. And, and they don't usually apply to like, like hyper growth companies. And, and clubhouse is a good example of this. Like, you know, I've been critical of Clubhouse on this podcast before and like how they kind of started their company with like not a really big 
comprehensive privacy protective model, right? And they probably still don't really have a really robust one, but how else were they gonna grow? So, I mean, I, 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 I agree with your point. I don't know what the good solution for this is. I agree that it's an, it, it's a, it's a, it's an issue. And that's why I said, I, I like the fact that the UK is kind of looking at it saying, okay, we know we have an issue here. Let's kind of look at it. I think I agree with you also that the determining factor needs to be the data, the nature of the data and the types of the uses of the data, right? Right. So if you are a, uh, uh, no matter how big you are, right, like you're a really small company or a really big, big company, but you're dealing with very sensitive data with kind of monetizing it or using it in very kind of new ways or whatever, then that shouldn't be a difference. But what my example was like, you're just, you know, a simple business that happens to, you know, handle personal data in a way that's incidental to the business, you still have kind of the same obligations as somebody else, right? And I mean, you know, blah, blah, maybe fewer DPIAs or automated processing, whatever, because you just don't have that, but you still need to do all of the other things that you need. And that's very difficult. And so I think that's really worth taking that part, right? Trying to figure out, you know, the innocuous uses, the non-sensitive information, the no sharing and all that, like those are definitely worth taking another look at. Is it is it what do you do with a small company like you said like a small company that deals with super sensitive information and shares it and monetizes it i think that may not be you know the right thing to give them a pass and that's why i think you know in, in that regard the approach like in ccpa where they're saying okay either you're a big company or you handle a lot of data or you monetize data like those are three things that we think we're going to capture the kind of more uh, problematic, quote unquote, uses of data. Let's talk. Yeah, about, I, I think. But if we, take that, if we take that approach, then we then we have to admit, and may, like I don't know why this is so controversial. GDPR favors incumbents because if the answer is if you decide to build a business around sensitive data, then you should have these barriers to entry that didn't exist prior to whenever, or that were less restrictive prior to whenever. And the companies who got in early get the benefit of being early. Right. And, and like now didn't have to go through the gauntlet that you do to scale your business. I think we should just accept that as true, but nobody wants to admit it. And I don't understand why. The reality of the fact is that if you are operating in sensitive data or just personal data in general as part of your business model, like, for example, you're a fledgling startup who sells product A, but also wants to use their data for advertising to build out and scale their business. It's harder now than it was a few years ago. It's just more, it's more expensive. It's riskier. Uh, it, it, like it could lead to more trouble in the sense of enforcement than it did just a couple of years ago. Yeah. That is the truth. I don't know why, I'm not saying you, I'm saying the world if, if doesn't want to admit that that's the truth. If your plan is to monetize the data, I agree. You know, if you're simply doing ad tech to grow your business, I think we have a different, it's a different animal altogether. Like there are there are risks and everything. So in a small company like ours, like Alice, we, we, we have, um, you know, uh, we have a, a set of data that someone, one person might consider to be of a certain level of, um, of requiring a certain level of protection. And others might say, no, well, well, health data and financial data are way more sensitive than the, the simple kind of gift interest data that you might carry. And we have, you know, complexity around controller processor issues. So like, I, I think when it comes to ad, like one of the things Odia said was interesting to me was 
that if the UK is examining what they are, how they are implementing their, their law, now that they've Brexited the situation, um, to me as a small business or as an incumbent, like what, what's the realistic way for them to actually draft their law to, to make it actually more business friendly to go do business in the UK? Because that's really, I think it's commercial. Like, what are they after? They're after more people doing business in their country because they are seeing the, the, the cutoff that's happening. You know, Pedro, you and I have talked a lot, like what's the big European tech company? Like, we'll wait while you think of them, you know, like there's not that. Yeah, many. I think we came up with Spotify, which is yeah, one. So like relaxing, relaxing cookie banners as an example, like that helps me a little. But what would really help me would be like if I didn't have to do a hundred fucking ropas, like, but you know, like that's stupid work to me. It would help you though. (laughs) But the problem is, is that it only helps you if you are just in the UK, right? Right. Because even if you're a relatively small company, you're still processing the personal data of EU data subjects. And therefore you have 50 different, and therefore you have to read the Finland data protection guidance from cookies from yesterday and cross-reference it against the one in German and the one in French and the one in Spanish and like figure out what you need to do. It's an incredible point because small companies serve large companies. Think about how many large customers we have that are like, we, you should send gifts everywhere. Well, I should. But like, that's a lot of data protection loss <laughs> all at once, you know, that's a ton. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just wish we like, I, I wish we were just like, I know this is hard, but like, I don't think it's an unfair conclusion to say that like Europe make, it has made it harder to start a tech company. I think that's true. Oh, I've, I've read that. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen that, you know. And when I say that, people are like, oh my God, you're being anti-European. First of all, I was born in Europe. Let's start this. <laughs> First of all. Second of all, I'm not, it's not anti-European. I'm just like, that's just the truth. Now, the next philosophical question is, should it be harder to start a tech company? I think the answer is probably yes. I think it should be really hard if you're going to deal with well, like people's personal information to like build a business around that. If that's true, and we've decided societally, at least in Europe and in a few other parts of the world, that that's the case, then we have to admit we're late. And so the incumbents got an advantage here. And like, I work at one of the incumbents, but I I think that that's an okay thing to say. And say like, yes, it should be hard. We're behind on this. Um, And there will be some incumbent advantage. And, and, And because there is, it's just that, it's just plain, plain to see and like what is the value in admitting that it's commercial patience for new companies that aren't going to grow from one day to the next into google okay like because it takes longer and it's harder and it's more expensive and i think like we could look at company value differently if we look at it in the context of don't compare like rising tech company to google or facebook because they don't exist in the same regulatory reality and so compare them to their counter, like contemporaries you think um, and companies that have come up after the like regulatory that's regimes that have been implemented. That's a good question. Maybe, do you, Odia, do you think like regulators have that view? Like, do they view, they must view those companies differently, right? The big ones? Yeah, the, the incumbent versus the so- small company in the, in the lens of compliance, right? And I think it's hard because as an outside council i can imagine like 
people have concerns, you know, your client has concerns and they want those concerns addressed, but, and it's not necessarily going to be an acceptable answer. I know because I'm on the receiving end of it, plenty of like, well, the regulator isn't quite so concerned with you, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, those, those are, I mean, those I try to, I, those I try, and this is one of the, you know, I see a lot of your, you know, posts about kind of the practice and, and, and what do you, and, and how do you go about it? I think that first of all, when I get asked questions like not even small versus big companies, but questions like, Hey, I'm a non-EU processor in the U S who's coming after me. Right. Everybody. And so, you know, the, the, the answer to that is unclear and ending, right? Like we were promised, apparently there's, there's guidance on this. I saw is, is like the, the plenary, the EDPB plenary is talking about, I think, either this or a component of this or like article three, three, two and, and chapter five or something. But I mean, realistically, right? I think you, or, or like the discussion that I had, you know, pre, 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 pre CCPA about cookie management platforms where I was asked like, why should we care about cookies? I've never heard about cookie enforcement in like the US, like this is not a thing. So I think that you, as, as an attorney, as outside counsel, I try to, you know, one, you know, move the needle for compliance as much as I can while making sure that like, I don't break it. You know, it's like my, my husband bought a, um, a snow plow and was like a small one. And he's so strong. He like literally like pushed it so hard, it broke. So I try to not do that because it's, it's it, because it, the, the, you know, the doing nothing because it broke and you're frustrated, which, which I know, you know, companies feel like, or the wait and see thing is worse than the, okay, I got the B plus of compliance because I don't have the money for the A plus. You want to paddle them down the river. You want to paddle so you, them yeah, down, exactly, the down the flowing but, river. But you yeah. know what's interesting about B plus, of, I love what you said and I agree. And I think fundamentally we should think about it that way. The problem is that you could get the B plus of compliance Man, if you get on the radar of one of these for sure. uh, CPAs, they're gonna hammer you. But and like you, that's not fair. But if you got an F, they would they would hammer you even worse, right? So if they care to, about you, if, if they care, they right, 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 right. This other way, yeah, and for sure. You could be, you could and be I getting think an F in that and situation, skirting along. Uh, so in that situation, I feel like maybe, and I don't know the answer to that. And if, you know, you read the, the, if you're looking at like the decisions and the EDPB discussions and some of my friends, you know, are in all the EDPB gossip and whatever, right? Like maybe regulators are grading <laughs> on a curve, right? Like maybe they're grading on a curve or something uh, in compliance. But I think, I think that you want to do a combination of things. You want to be realistic. Like you want to know what's going on. And I would tell clients, look, this is what the law, and I did I'm like, this is what the law says. The law contains this situation. So, you know, the law says this could be a sale and like, you need to figure out an opt out and like, it's in the law. Okay. Now, what are the likelihood that this is going to be enforced at that point? Like this was a, before even the regs, before anything, I was like, I don't know. We don't know what the prior enforcement priorities are. We've heard some sins right? I know what the trends are in Europe. I've seen the, the winds of enforcement. We've since then seen third-party cookie enforcement in COPA. So like we know that cookies are a thing. And then I think you like read the trends and you explain the law. And also I think that at the, the end of the day, right, the risk, and, and this is also kind of relates to smaller versus bigger companies, the risk tolerance of the company is the company's, right? Like sometimes when I get asked this question, I'm like, 
do you ask like your tax attorney, if I cheat on my taxes, what are the odds you get audited? Like the odds are X. Like it's not like if I park in a no parking zone, right? What are the odds? I don't know. I'm not, this is, I don't, I'm not in the gambling odds business, right? I can tell you, this is what you need to do. This is what it means to do it. This is what we know of enforcement. And then you as the business need to figure out, you know, your risk tolerance and what you want to do now and what you maybe want to do a month from now because you can't do it or because you don't have the budget to do it or something. It's an additional but, but, but I think like if you ask your law firm, can I, if I cheat on my taxes, what happens? You're coming at it with bad faith, right? For like sure. that's, bad, that's bad faith. Yeah. I, when I was in private practice or at the corporations I've ever worked at, like I've never had an internal or external client say to me, what if I just decide fuck this thing? <laughs> you know, I mean, it may be in some random hypothetical over drinks, but not in a real way. Um, and so like I, that leads me to believe that most people come at compliance in good faith. So then the real question that I get, and I'm sure you get a lot as outside counsel is like, what's the best interpretation of this rule that we can get so that we don't collapse our business. Are there iterations? Are there like within the compliance sphere, yeah. there's a spectrum where on that spectrum should we land to try to manage our risk in ways that like takes into account our resources, takes into account our business strategy and takes into account like, like hot, like the likelihood of enforcement. That's yeah. the kind of question I get all the amen, time. Amen on that. And I just want to put a fine point on that. Everything you said, plus 100. But I want to put a fine point on that, which is in addition to the regulatory risk or the risk appetite of the company or or, or it, the importance of their, their business, which you mentioned, it's important, I think, not just for outside counsel, but for the GC as well to advise their business like this, this issue exists in, on a spectrum. Where we land on the spectrum is going to influence how our answers to security questionnaires with customers will be received, how we will get business. So you've always framed oh, yeah. in terms of what are we going to look like when we go to try to sell our stuff or partner or do something really strategic or sell the business? What is it going to look like in diligence if I look like shit? Well, that's terrible. And so like it is the it is on both the outside counsel and the GC to be like, no, you got to get to a certain place for and, this to and, be acceptable. And that and that was sort of the tail end of my answer before before um, from before, which is, you know, even if you don't have regulatory exposure right now, because nobody cares about you, maybe or because, you know, you, you have like, I mean, you have, I don't know, you have three, three people in a dog doing a beta pilot or something, or, you know, you, um, but, or you don't have to, like, you're not subject to DDBR, but you have clients who are, right? Or, or you're not subject to CCPA, but you have clients who are, you know, the main, the main exposure is, you know, are you, you know, is that going to be an impediment for you to get business from the clients that need to be compliant? And now with everything, right in the edpb guidance in ccpa saying okay you've got to like vet your vendors seriously and this is what it means right i think that that's even more um that drives the point even more and i think that that's in a lot of these cases one the business and two i mean i've had conversations with clients a lot about okay so this is not your this is not your legal issue this is not your liability okay it's not on you it's on x all right but if it happens you know, it's still your data. It's still your PR. You could be, you're still implicated. Like the PR problem could be worse than any legal problem anyway. And so, um, and so yeah. that- Or a uh, customer churn. You could just churn out customers if you're in a, in a sales focused business, you know? 
Why, why is like Latin America, I'm just totally changing the subject, sort of. Why doesn't any company talk seriously about compliance with Latin American data protection laws? Um, no. why, why is it always an afterthought in every discussion about like strategy? I mean, I think like the order of merit in most discussions is like GDPR, CCPA, all of the, the like GDPR children, DSA, DMA, EDPB guidelines, e-privacy, you know, the 150 things that fall under that. Then uh, like a couple US laws like HIPAA and whatever. And then you go around the world, India, and you go to Australia, and, and then ultimately you land in Latin America, and go, ah, we'll take a risk-based approach. <laughs> it's a, me, why does that happen? I don't know the answer to that. It's um, uh, they they hired the wrong PR agency for data protection laws. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I Brazil is going to change that equation. Yeah, for now. sure. For sure. For, for sure. sure. I, my, my theory is that like there's been a lack of enforcement, right? But then and to your point about like exposure, like what's the likelihood of someone enforcing against you? But that goes back to my point about like unfairness, because I think there's like ideas out there that the reason Latin American companies don't enforce because they don't have resources or they don't have sophisticated understandings of data protection laws. False. Mexico has tremendously advanced data protection laws. Brazil clearly does. Colombia has. Uh, Argentina does. Uh, and the, the, the list goes on. Um, the issue is about incumbency and market, right? Like you don't want to scare off companies that are doing business in your jurisdiction because like you depend on them in ways that maybe the European economy or the American economy doesn't or care as much, right? Like finding Facebook in England is, I'm using this as a hypothetical, in, in, in the UK, a, a ton of money is probably not going to lead to all social media companies leaving the UK. But I could see a scenario where if Costa Rica got really aggressive, they just shut them down. I'm not saying any company is planning to do that, but you get my point. That's what I was going to say. I think it's market driven. You know, it certainly comes from if I, my lens from a smaller company, but having been in bigger ones, um, it's about the order of operations in which you enter a market. Yeah. You, know, you start in the U.S. If you're a U.S. company, you enter into Europe, bigger market. I'm picking bigger countries to enter into. What's next? Maybe it's Asia. Um, when I look at Latin America, there's a couple countries that you might, you know, from a market perspective, uh, size, just size, you know, sheer size. And so it's probably different for an incumbent like Facebook, where I don't have a sense for user volume, you know, and monetization yeah. in those different countries. But I, I guarantee you that the compliance approach would certainly be ranked alongside the, the importance of a market, right? My worry in all of this, I haven't even said the word Africa, which is also the same issue. And right. a lot of countries in Asia, same issue. Um, my worry in all of this is that we move to a highly restrictive, highly user-focused privacy compliance apparatus in the West, and we exploit the data of people in the developing geographies. That's colonialism. Data colonialism, but that's what it is. I really think about this quite a bit. Um, I don't, I'm not the most sophisticated thinker on it, and I'm not like the most advanced like, I don't know all the angles here and I could be way off, but my intuition tells me that like we could land somewhere like that unless we decide that it's not just so much about like enforcement risk, but it's about like the world is deciding that the way we use privacy, uh, privacy, the way we use personal data is going to change and, this, and it's going to apply the same for everyone. 
I mean, just think about what I just said, right? Like, like the West has spent 300, 500, 1,000 years extracting every resource from South America and from Africa and from Asia. And then as data rules get more restrictive in the Western developing countries, the extraction will just happen from these other geographies. Yeah. Um, and the data, I'm really worried about that. The data can be used at scale in ML models. And like, there's a lot of... Yeah. I don't worry about that in the sense of like, it's like like not my day to day responsibility, but I worry. I mean, it, it's part. It forms part of my thinking, but I worry about that just like for civilization. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I know that's big. I want to bring it topic. to a little. Let's bring it to a little less lofty topic, which is cheesesteaks. <laughs> oh wow! So you are not from Philly, and I'm curious about what your take on the cheesesteak is, Pedro. I've never even asked you this, so I'm curious on yours too. But what? not being from there what do you think of them um so you know i was not really impressed um but we had <laughs> this is the most controversial thing said i know seriously like I I, yeah I'm, I, I'm i'm i yeah i'll get like you know beaten in the street but um no but here's the flip side is <laughs> here's the flip side is that i am um uh, I, I i like day i collect data and to, to draw my conclusions. And so, um, but for the past, like my family, our family, my husband and I, my family are all in Israel. And so, you know, with, with COVID, we hadn't seen them for ages and everything. And so now it's so happened that we've been hosting, you know, people for the past three months consecutively, which is, you know, interesting, but anyway, um, the, so we had, because of, you know, you have, you live somewhere for a long time, but then you have people coming over and it's like, oh, the constitution center, oh, the Liberty Bell, like everybody has to go through the landmarks. So then we've had people over and then we have, you know, bought them cheesesteaks because Philadelphia and everybody was like super impressed and super (laughs) happy about this. And so, you know, I, uh, that's, you know, that's, that's the ballad that I'm like signing in. But for you, people's choice. But for you, it's, it's overrated. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Pedro, what's your take? I don't know if I've ever asked you that. Um, I can't eat bread anymore. So that kills my cheesesteak vibe. I'm Mr. Gluten-free these days. Um, But I definitely have partaken in my share of uh, Philly cheesesteaks. I like Steve's Prince. It's like guttery, like bottom of the barrel kind of um, Philly cheesesteaks. But I okay, it's not guttery or bottom of the barrel. It's just not one of the ones that like is on Yelp and people are talking about it nationally. But I like Steve's Prince. It's just kind of like a classic neighborhood cheesesteak place. A lot of whiz, a lot of steak, and a lot of bread. Like that's what a cheesesteak is to be. Is it my look? I guess the bigger question, which I think um, Odia was answering, is like. Are Philly cheesesteaks something to dream about? Right. So I I'm feel like Philly cheesesteaks favor the incumbents who were born in Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I can see how it's a super comfort food if you're from Philly, man. Like, I totally get it. Am yeah, I going to, yeah. like, be on, like, I have to go to Philly to eat a cheesesteak or else my life is meaningless? I'm probably not in that. The Philly, the Philly sports fan is an angry one. Yes. I, I, like I've never understood that either. Very angry, throw batteries at people, like angry. Batteries. There's a jail, there's a jail underneath the veteran stadium. But like is that true? Maybe there was. I don't know oh if there God. is in the new one. But anyway, like maybe it's just like they need it to comfort themselves and bring the anger level down. The cheesesteak is comforting. I think Philly is a cool city. It's funny you talked about like the landmarks. One time I was in Philly. I don't even know what I was doing there. And I'm just walking down the sidewalk and I'm happening to be walking down next to a cemetery. Like, and I don't know, it 
some cemetery in Philly. And for whatever reason, I looked at one of the like tombs or not tombs or whatever, like tombstone-y thing. It was like a plaque, like a big long thing. And it just said Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And I Google this thing and it's Benjamin Franklin's grave, like right on the side of the street, not on the side of the street, but like right there, like viewable from the street. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was like super shocked by that. Like that doesn't happen in other cities. You're not walking around Atlanta and trip over George Washington or some shit like that. Like that's not really going to happen. You know, so that, I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, history wise, like Philly is pretty sick and uh, in a cool way. And like um, uh, the Masonic Lodge, have you been to that one in downtown Philly? Like the huge, like Freemasony building there. It's one of the most beautiful, inside, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It's like such a cool building. Anyway, shout out to Philly. Don't like the Eagles. Don't like the, <laughs> the 76ers. Don't like the Phillies, but shout out to Philly. Yeah, but, but, but we like you. And thank you for- Yeah, thanks for thanks bearing for, with us. Thanks for coming, coming and chatting. We appreciate it. Yeah.